Good morning, Midtown. Welcome to worship. Uh, This morning, I'm going to read our call to worship from Psalm 100, because as weird as this is to be on camera and as weird as this is to not be in our normal flow of life, the God that we serve is good, and He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So hear this call to worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Let's worship the Lord together. Midtown, let's sing together. Let's lift our voices in faith and celebrate the hope that we have in Christ. He is our living hope. Began to breathe. 
the silence the roaring lion declare the grave has no claim on me then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to Thank you. That you are alive. That we are yours. You have called us your own. Thank you for salvation that you have brought to us. You have brought us into your own. That you now count us as sons and daughters, children of the King. Would you encourage our hearts? through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hey folks, my name is Jonathan Nash. Um, I'm one of the pastors on staff here with Midtown. And uh, if you haven't met me before, my wife and family, I've got uh, four young kids. We live in uh, the Napier area of South Nashville. And we do urban ministry and church planting there. So uh, come give us a visit sometime and look forward to, uh, to sharing more about that, um, you know, even in the coming months. But very honored and, and excited to be here in this interesting space and time, bringing the word. So we're going we're gonna to open that together. And if you've got a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be finishing out 
the chapter um, that uh, we actually were in last week. And also, uh, I have the privilege of closing out our Luke series. So uh, a, a bittersweet time of um, you know, being in this series during, during the coronavirus uh, shutdown and, and excited to get into what we're going to do in the summer. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, um, starting in verse 11, and, and we're looking at another of Jesus' parables. Um, and before we get started, there's uh, some, and just really like in all the parables, there's some really interesting things that are, that are going on in this parable. And we're going to spend some time looking at them, but we're certainly not going to get to everything because um, Jesus didn't tell a parable, believe it or not, to try to make us look at every single point and decode what every one of those points means for us. In fact, we believe that Jesus told parables because he wanted to say something specific to the people that he was speaking to at that time and also to us. So we're going to really try to get at what is it in this story that Jesus wanted to say to the people listening? And even more importantly than that, what is the thing in this parable um, that the Holy Spirit has to say to us um, in the space and time that we're in right now? So uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this for us, and you can follow along with me. Starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. And Jesus replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. So like I said, so many interesting interesting things to dig into in this parable. Um, You know, I want to kind of make the point, first of all, that that this parable in Jesus' mind as he's giving it, uh, the intent of it is to do exactly what it says at the very beginning in verse 11. So in verse 11, the first verse of the parable, it says, um, he tells this parable as they're nearing Jerusalem. And he says, because the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So this is a parable about the kingdom of God. This is a a parable about the, the very thing that we actually started this entire Luke series in, which is Jesus coming before kind of the first community of people that he was preaching to and saying, I have come to bring the kingdom of God, and this is what it looks like. It's, it's good news to the poor. 
It's liberty to the captives. It's, it's the recovery of sight to the blind, right? It's, it's a proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. This is the thing that I've come to bring. I've come to inaugurate it. I've come to establish it in a new way that wasn't true before. So that right here uh, just already makes me think a lot about how much I have thought about this time that we're in. Um, you know, in, in, you know, whatever, 15 years when you have someone that didn't live through this time and they come and ask you, you know, Grandfather, what, what was it like, you know, in the coronavirus time? Uh, you know, you'll, you'll have all these experiences that you've, that you've been living through that um, have really shaped how unique and different um, this period of time has been for you. And in many ways, what Jesus is coming and doing is he's saying, you're entering a new kingdom. You're entering a new era. And this era isn't accidental. This era is not unintentional. This is the thing that I'm coming to bring. And so the parable that he's giving is to, is to help his people understand that there's a, a future portion of this kingdom that he's come to bring that isn't with us in the present now. There's, there's actually something, as, as Jesus compares himself to the Lord who becomes king, that this man leaves to return to bring back the kingdom. So there's a present reality, and, but there's also a future thing to look forward to. Which I know many of us are looking forward to the things that we're going to get to do when... Um, you know, we hope things return a little bit more to normal. So the first point that I want to make that I think Jesus is, is telling us in this parable is that the kingdom of God is something that's coming. So it is present. It's here now because he brought it, but there's also a sense in which it's coming. And so that's where we get in the story, the fact that this man, you know, calls him um, a, a man of noble birth, a lord, a nobleman. He's not a king yet, but he leaves to then return and bring a kingdom. So the kingdom that we're waiting for is coming. You know, several weeks ago, uh, Elliot preached a, a similar parable that talks about the end times, and he, he shared some about what this kingdom is. Um, one way to think about the, the kingdom that's coming is it's a new creation kingdom, that Jesus is returning to bring a new creation, something that's at one time similar, but also completely different and new, just similar to the way that Jesus' body when he rose from the grave was, was, was the same, but in, in another sense was brand new. There's a new creation kingdom that Jesus is coming to bring. And so we live in the kingdom now as we wait for that to come. That's the point that Jesus is making. These servants and the, the, the people in, in this man's kingdom are, are in the kingdom in this in-between time, waiting for the king to return. And the whole idea of a king and a kingdom, I just kind of want to say from the beginning, I think is one of the hardest things for us to engage with in this parable. That for us living in the time we live in in America, the country we live in under the, you know, the um, government that we live in, it's very hard for us to kind of um, get close to this understanding and, uh, of what it was like to be a, a servant in a kingdom. Um, I'd say it's difficult for us. We, we automatically assume, um, you know, when we read this parable, that, that, well, what's wrong with that king? You know, why is it that his servants or his subjects rather don't? don't love him. They don't want him to be king. You know what? He must be a terrible ruler. Well, the parable doesn't give us any sense that this was a bad ruler. In fact, just the opposite. You know, for the people living this time to be under the rule of a good king was a good thing. That you wanted to be in a kingdom. You wanted to have the protection of a king. You wanted to be in the family of a good and noble king. And that's actually the picture we get of this Lord who becomes king. So Jesus is coming, he's, he's, he's left, and he's coming again, and he's bringing this new creation kingdom. And just like the servants in the parable, we are waiting for his return. The second thing that, uh, that this parable, really the point that Jesus is wanting to make to his audience and, and also to us, 
is that God's, ping, or God's kingdom has people in it. All right? it's, not, it's not an empty kingdom, and that, that sounds obvious, but you know, I'm reading um, the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time with my kids, and it's been so incredible. It's been years and years and years since I read them. And I don't know if you remember one of the lesser-known books. It's actually the first book um, in the series. It's called The Magician's Nephew. And there's this scene where the characters are standing kind of up on this mountaintop, and they're looking over an entire world that's one big city. Except there's a problem. It's completely empty. It's this, this massive kingdom, an entire world that's one huge city, and it's completely devoid of life. That is not the kingdom uh, that Jesus has established. That is not the kingdom that he has in his good will ordained to create. His kingdom is a kingdom that's full of people. It's got men and women. And what do they do? Well, in this parable, we see that in God's kingdom, we work. That's what we do. That we labor. That we do things. And we don't, we don't just be, we do. And not only is that true now, we see that the servants you know, are given tasks to do with the money that the king entrusts to them. And they're told to do work, but they also do more work after he comes back, right? They, the, in verses um, 17 and 18, you know, the master says, Well done, my good servant, because you have been trustworthy working in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. So there's more work for them to do. So there's a sense in which we believe that when this new kingdom comes, that Jesus has put work for us to do now. He's also going to have work for us to do in the future. So work is a, is, a, is a very important part. It's not incidental to God's kingdom. It's a necessary part of God's kingdom. And then the third thing that kind of on the surface that we get to see in this parable um, is that Jesus is teaching that uh, in the kingdom of God, not everyone serves the king. And this is really where the parable begins to take on a lot of interesting color and flavor because we see that not everyone in this parable is just like, ah, oh, yes, to the king, you know. That, that there are people in this parable who don't like the king. And then in particular, we have the character of the third servant. Okay, so let's take a second and look at him. You know, first, um, going back to the story, Jesus you know, says that there are two servants. They're each given, uh, or three servants, and they're all three given the same amount of money. Uh, Amina would have been about three months' wages. Um, so a, a decent chunk of money, but, but not a massive amount. And, you know, the three put it to work. Um, the first two, you know, put it to work and earn a lot more. I mean, 10 times the amount that the king gave them for the very first one and five times the amount that the king gave them for the second one. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of good work done. And then the third servant, though, says something completely different. He says, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. And I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you do not sow. So what I think, um, the reason why there's a, a character of the third servant in this passage is because Jesus wants to make the point that being under the kingdom, being under the king, involves a deep relationship with the king. That you can't be part of the king's kingdom and also not be part of the king himself. The best way I can think of to illustrate this my wife and I are, walking, uh, are watching the, uh, the F1 racing series right now on Netflix, one of the, one of the things we've chosen to, to binge on during this time. And first of all, it's incredible. I would definitely recommend you seeing it, not with children uh, because of the language, but um, fascinating uh, study in people. 
And it kind of hit me that there's, there's a similar dynamic going on with the third servant as is going on in that series. And again, without being able to give you all the details, the series really, the, the, the television series looks deeply into the internal workings of these F1 racing teams. And that's really what they are, is they're teams. You know, there, there's, there's the driver, of course, you know, who's the one on the big billboard, but there's all this support staff and leadership that's supporting. They're massive teams. Some of the teams have a couple hundred people working for them. And there's a, there's a reality that begins to happen when you see the egos of these drivers come out. And you realize something really interesting, and it's that you're a part of the team, or you're, you're kind of with the team, but you're not, you're not necessarily on the team. There's a, there's a way in which because of your decision to kind of push back and say, no, this is really about me, and I might actually be looking for a new contract with a new team next year because there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, that you get certain of the, of the, of the, you know, the race car drivers who are, are in the team but not on the team. And you know, one in particular, as soon as he gets a chance to sign on with another team, even though he's been with his Red Bull team for 10 years, he takes it and he's gone. And you kind of get the sense of like, well, where, where was your allegiance? Where was your loyalty? And I think there's something going on here that I think is really important for us to understand that the difference between servant number one and two and servant number three is that servant number one and two were all in with the king. That they actually recognize, wait a second, what we have been given, the work that we have done has been completely with borrowed riches, right? The, 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 effort that we put in and what has been produced has come from the riches of the king and we're underneath this king that he he is our lord he's the one whose family we're in whereas this third servant gives us a completely different picture of his relationship with the king you know he says i was afraid because you're a hard man that he had gone ahead and decided who this king was who this lord was and he, everything he did after that was flowing from that decision flowing from that relationship with the lord and it's so interesting because we see what he did. He wrapped up his mina in a piece of cloth. And if you were reading this in the original language, you would see that um, there was something really intentional that was done there with that word piece of cloth because it wasn't just a piece of cloth. It was a, a sweat rag. Literally, the word is it's a, it's a sweat rag. It's supposed to be the piece of cloth that you would wipe your face after you had labored. And instead of laboring with the riches of his Lord because he was trusting in the Lord, because he was actually a servant in the king's household, he decided to wrap that piece of cloth up and wrap it up with the Lord's riches inside. So not everyone in the kingdom serves the king. You can be in the kingdom. You can just live there. You can just kind of inhabit the space but not truly be part of the family. So I think this begins to make even more sense when we start to turn this to our own lives. Um, so if Jesus is teaching us, number one, that the kingdom is coming, number two, that it's full of people and those people work, and number three, you can be in it, but you might not really have a relationship with the king, then when we begin to take this parable and say, okay, Jesus, what's in here for us? Maybe even specifically, what's in here for me in this particular point in time that I'm in? I think we see a couple things. And the first is, is you know, as we are living in this here and now, waiting on this new creation kingdom to come back, the Lord has called us to work. Our Lord, our master, right, who's left to become king is calling us to work. That us working, us doing our jobs, us um, you know, laboring with the gifts and the riches that the king has given us is our calling here and now. 
And, and what's maybe most interesting about what this parable does is how it teaches us about work by what it doesn't say about work. So notice the things it doesn't say about work. It doesn't list the qualifications of the servants. It doesn't list their education. It doesn't list why the king chose them. There's actually literally nothing that is said about the servants themselves and their own personal gifts and abilities. What is said is what the king gives them. And we even see in the way that the, that the passage you know, talks about, I mean, just some of the language I think is it's intentionally interesting. In verse 16, when the, the Lord comes back to the servant, the first servant, uh, to report, the, the servant says this. He says, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Does he say, Lord, look, look what, you know, you know, look, look, what, look at the work that I've done with the, the meaning you've gave me. Look at how I have, you know, multiplied your riches by 10. There's none of that. It says you're almost as if the mina itself has a life of itself and it has ability to earn more itself. The, the servant is just the one who has been given the riches and then does what the king expects with them. And we're not even told what that is. We're not told whether it was an investment. We're not told if, you know, he kind of invented the next big thing in first century uh, ancient Near East and made a bunch of money on it. it it's, it's intentionally narrowing our gaze on the point that Jesus is trying to make, which is we have been given to work, we've been called to work, and we have been given the riches that we need to do it. That we actually work, you and I work, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge the king or not, but we work with borrowed riches. We take the riches, the gifts, the abilities that we've been given, and we put them to work. You know, I was thinking about what that could look like. Obviously, in this passage, it's, it's like monetary riches. But riches can be tangible, like, like money. They can also be intangible. I, I would say that this parable includes all of your own personal gifts and abilities, your passions, your creativity, the, the things that only you can do the way you do them are part of the riches that your king has given you. They're not yours any more than your money is yours. And there's also spiritual riches that we've been given. Right? We, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the greatest rit, rich, the greatest you know, monetary gift, uh, non-monetary gift that the Lord has given us is his own spirit, is his own presence. And Jesus says, I, I, you know, I leave, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you with me, and in the meantime, I'm leaving with you my spirit. Spiritually speaking, we've also been given uh, the riches of the word of God, that we actually have a guide to faith and life. We have a way to practice this life we've been given in the spiritual gift of the word of God. So in all these things, the point of this parable is saying they're all his. And that says something incredibly profound to us. And I think this is what's hopefully can help us understand what's going on with this third servant and what's going on with you and me when I act like the third servant. And it's this point. If, if, if everything we've been given is a gift from our king then we don't and can't work from a place of lack or need. That if the way I approach my work and the way I approach my entire life as a servant within the king's kingdom, if I approach that from a place of I don't have or I need to get what I don't have, then I've become the third servant. And I want to, I want to, to help us understand this, I want to change the analogy just a little bit. And I want to say, um, since this whole idea of being a servant in a kingdom is so difficult, for us, um, I want you to think about it like a son or a daughter in the house of your father or your mother. You know, I've got four young kids. Um, they're all five and, and under. And I can tell you one thing for sure. <laughs> There's lots of things I can't tell you for sure about my house. I can tell you one thing for sure. And it's that my kids are never wondering why they're in the house 
or whether they belong? And I would say yet, unfortunately, because we know there's a reality to growing up and, and maturing into being adults where we start to doubt things that we never should have doubted in the first place. But that's not true of my kids right now. They're, they're never wondering why they're in my home. They're never wondering what they need to do to stay in my home. They're not working or they're not laboring, right, which involves just play and joy from a place of lack. They're, they're doing it from a place of abundance. And so when we work from a place of lack, we leave our father's house. We leave our king's kingdom. And we begin to look at our king in the same way that this third servant looks at his master. I was afraid. You know why he was afraid? It's because he was all alone. And that's what begets fear. So if, if number one, practical implication of this parable for us, if number one is that we work, then number two, and most importantly of all, I think, is that we remain in the king's house. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus is inviting us into doing in this life, in this crazy time that we're in, is can you, could you just remain in my house? When my daughter Kate um, does what she does all the time, which is create art for me, probably five to six pieces of art a day during this time. She's not thinking about the fact that the crayons and colored pencils and paper that she's making it with are mine. She's not, she's not getting stuck in the fact that, well, wait, have I, have I bought, do I, have I earned the right to make this stuff for my dad? No, she's just doing what she does, giving, her, you know, giving herself joy and giving me joy and showing me love just with all the stuff that's already mine. There's never this sense of, wait a second, have I earned this? Am I, am I uh, you know, allowed to be here? Should, you know, should I be here? She's safe. And she's secure. And so as soon as our work begins to be done as a means of proving that we should remain or buying our way into remaining in the house of our father then we've actually left the king's house, right? The irony is that we, we've actually already left at that point. And how much more so than my kids having rest and faith in me as their father and, and my wife as their mother and rest and faith and security in my house, how much more can we, as God's children, rest and securely dwell in faith in the house of our heavenly father? And I think... Although Jesus in this passage and in this parable is inviting us to see him as the king, I think that's kind of the obvious connector if we're going to decide who in the parable represents who. Jesus is the one who's leaving, right, and returning as a king. But here's an encouragement that I would like to leave you with. Not only is Jesus the king, but he's actually also showed us the perfect model of what it means to be a servant and a son. That he actually fulfills both of the characters, in this parable. Not, not only is he the king who's coming back with the kingdom as God himself, he's also the perfectly faithful, submissive, and free servant and son. Think about, goodness, a, you know, a dozen passages in the Gospels. How about the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus is sitting there and he's, he is utterly destroyed and broken down by the labor that his father has asked him to do, right? Which is to go and die on the cross and bear the sins of all his people. And he looks at Jesus, or Jesus looks at his father in prayer and says, Father, you know, if, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. And then you hear him say, but not my will, 
but yours be done. That statement is a statement of presence in the house of his father, of of presence and, and remaining securely in a relationship with his king. And what does that free Jesus to do? Well, it frees Jesus to then labor completely sacrificially. And I think if there's, if there's a, a nugget that, that um, it's okay for us to take from this parable and say, oh, this is what I need to now go do, it's living in light of the fact that we're secure in the house of our Father, that we're secure within the kingdom of the King who's coming back to bring a new creation, that then frees me to be wildly sacrificial in my work. That my work is now not, again, to prove my presence in the kingdom, to, to earn the gifts that my Father's given me. Everything I'm doing is pouring out what He's already given to me, and so I can actually leverage those things for the sake of other people. And would you actually believe that work that's done ultimately for yourself is never going to be fulfilling? But rather work that's done sacrificing for others because it's being done with borrowed treasure is what's going to ultimately fulfill you. And think about the person of Jesus, your Savior, who not only is the king who's coming back to bring his kingdom, he's also the model of what it means to be a servant and a son. So in this time, uh, I don't know what to offer you. Um, I don't know what Midtown can offer you other than to say, look to Jesus. Um, Let him fill your vision during this time. Let... um, the noise that's coming in uh, from a thousand different places, lots of them probably the noise of shame of, am I doing this weird season right? Um, Am I operating the way I should? (laughs) Uh, Look to Jesus as the one who rested safely and securely in the presence and in the kingdom of his Father um, and be sacrificial and giving workers with all the riches he's given you. Let me pray. Father, uh, gosh, it's crazy, but thank you, I think. Uh, Thank you. I want to say thank you for putting us in a time like this. Um, Lord, I know there's a lot that's happening that um, there's a lot of brokenness caused by sin and and even just the the brokenness of um, physically people uh, being ill and dying that, that isn't a beautiful thing to you, but... The, the way that it takes our hearts and brings us closer to you in need, like kids, I think that is a beautiful thing. And so, Lord, I, uh, I want to say thanks um, for putting us in such a position where we have to at least wrestle with the idea of, of whose kingdom am I in and whose family am I a part of? And am I hiding the riches that you've given me uh, in the, the cloth that I should be using to wipe the sweat of my labor because I'm afraid of you? or I'm afraid that I'm alone. So Lord, call us back to uh, the sanity of the gospel. Call us back to the sanity of being reminded that we are not orphans, but we're sons and we're daughters uh, and we're in the house of a king. And would the truth of that by the power of your Holy Spirit so fill our vision that we have no other place to run to, that we can't leave your house. And when you do call us back, together. And when you do ultimately bring your kingdom and bring us into it in in all the fullness, um, Lord, would we be those that can look at you and say, you know, daddy, I never left. Um, I I stayed and I remained um, because that's where I knew I was safe. Um, So thank you, Lord Jesus. Um, Holy Spirit, protect us. Keep us safe as we're 
apart um, so that we can come back together one day soon. Pray this in your name. Amen. And now let's sing and make it our prayer that the Lord would quiet the noise around us and let us know him. Let us know his heart, the heart of a good father, a good master, a good king is calling us and drawing us to dwell in his love.
I just want to know your heart better than I've ever known anything and know your heart. I just want to know your heart. I just want to know your heart better than I've ever known anything. Let's read together these words from Romans, chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience.
Midtown uh, receive this benediction. Benediction is the good final word of a worship service, the final promise, the final declaration of God to his people as he sends us out. And just like Jonathan talked to us about, we are sent out as those who are waiting for our king. We are sent out as those who've been given everything we need by our father and by our king as we wait for him and the kingdom that he's bringing. And so as we wait, hear this promise, hear this assurance, hear these words of Jesus uh, to those of us who are waiting for him. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Go in peace.